Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, congrats, Glenn. Uh, I guess you got a new, uh, uh, some new digs there up in Minnesota. Yes, and one of the reasons I may sound a little bit different tonight is that I'm on a different mic. I, yes, I moved uh, from my apartment, which was very nice, nice little Lakeview apartment, uh, to my own home, which I'm very happy with and uh, a little more spacious. And uh, my office area is very nice. I really enjoy it, but it might be a little echoey and a different mic until I get things set up. So if sure. listeners, if, if our fans, our true fans <laughs> who listen to every episode, uh, detect a slight difference in my sound quality, that would be why. Well, and if anyone hears any background noise here, I can only apologize. I've got uh, I got some rowdy neighbors. Early earlier, they were blasting Mandy, and I, uh, if previous nights have gone according to plan, they'll make it to Metallica eventually. Mandy, the Barry Manilow song. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I the Metallica. I get you. That that that's music you blast. I don't know about Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, some nights it's hard to tell if they're just playing music loudly or singing karaoke or both. Uh, so that might be why why they might be doing Mandy and and loudly. Um, Perhaps they are preparing for a singing competition. Uh, you know, or just mental torture against their neighbors. But you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows? All right, so uh, got lots to cover tonight because we've been gone for so long. Just huge apologies to all of our, our you know, the constant listener out there. Glenn and I have been just so busy with just other projects and work and, and so much that... Uh, deadlines. deadlines. Deadlines, dude. Deadlines. <laughs> Real Holy deadlines. Cow. It's It's been insane recently. So uh, yeah. just slipping the, even tonight in uh, you know, was... Um, a challenge and uh and and a surprise so uh but glad to be finally back and recording again and i just have to get this all edited and, and uploaded uh but big thanks to some new patrons that have come in over the past couple months maybe saying some of these names a second time but it's been so long it's fine uh, so big thank you to logan linda andy uh kyle katie and lawrence uh very much appreciate uh you guys uh, kicking in some bucks our way and uh, for those that are going to be at the IEI conference in Nashville you know Glenn and I are planning on getting some new equipment to make it easier for us to record you know remotely not in our home offices with the equipment set up but uh, kind of on the road mobile equipment and you know it wouldn't be possible without uh, you know the the generous listeners out there that are helping us out indeed yes all right and then the anagram uh Glenn, we've only got a few more weeks left of, of anagrams before we, we switch to something else. Uh, no, so right. uh, you know, here we go with one of the last ones. Uh, Secret Xenon Cafe. Sounds very, very sci-fi. Uh, Secret Xenon X-E-N-O-N Cafe. So start unscrambling that one there. And I think next up we should talk about some emails we've received. Yeah, I think that would be great. Uh, be, uh, I was amazed at some of the responses that we got from our, the last recorded episode. That was the last one, right? That's hard to remember. I'd have to look that up, actually. Yeah, right. But Let's one of our last, it was. 
one of our last ones, uh, we, were t- we talked about uh, how examiners or even agencies uh, can uh, testify after an error, you know, how that works and just our thoughts on that topic uh, overall, you know, just basically what happens after you make an error or after someone in your unit does and you know, how to move forward from that. Uh, first off, one of the emails talked about uh, talked about something that I, I think we we mentioned just briefly in the discussion, um, but uh, it wasn't necessarily the person making the error, but the person finding the error, and that how that's a how that can be a a challenge and a burden as well, especially depending on how your coworker reacts, how your whole unit or lab reacts to all that. So some of the comments here uh, from the email. You know, especially in a situation where it seems to be the same analyst in a unit that is repeatedly finding the errors and feels that the rest of the unit or the lab system uh, isn't considering remedies to address these errors uh, or address the root causes of them. And then pointing out that you know, even during training, you can see sometimes the analysts that struggle uh, and will make errors in training. And then in some situations, those examiners may be the ones that also struggle after training and then struggle for their entire career. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a difficult situation to deal with. It is, it's difficult of you know, what does the agency do? Uh, and then what does the rest of the unit do to try to either bring this person along and uh, provide additional training or in what circumstances where will additional training really not help the situation and this examiner might be better suited for a different unit. Um, right. And and uh, overall, it was just you know a, a great email, kind of further discussing these some of these themes that we really kind of just barely touched on in in our episode, and describing just some of the other challenges, not for moving past an error when it's a kind of a one time occurrence, but in the different type of situation where it's a recurring problem how it can be challenging for the lab, the unit, and the finder of the errors uh, to, to deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was it was a very insightful email as well and uh, heartfelt. I, that's the thing. Both, well, both of those and uh, some of the other comments that we got yeah. were just very heartfelt, and you could tell that we had touched a, a nerve and struck a chord with, with, uh, with examiners that – what an emotional roller coaster, either finding an error or being part of an error or committing the error can can be. And uh, boy, it was I, I, I look forward to be only being able to come back to that topic uh, with and revisit it down the road. Yeah, we, we've got some plans to revisit this topic soon. So so, you know, very much looking forward to that. But she basically closes with, you know, there is no easy solution. And that's that's sometimes the case. And, uh, yeah. and thanks us for the episode and, and thank you for the, the email you know, in response to the episode. Uh, you very much enjoyed reading it. And, and like Glenn said, enjoyed reading the, uh, the insights that you also uh, added in. And then another email responds from uh, the same episode, taking on a, a di- kind of a different perspective here. Uh, examiner wrote in telling the story of when she first started, uh, with her agency, uh, making an erroneous ID. She had come up as a crime scene investigator uh, and uh, also worked on APHIS, but had a goal of moving into latent prints and uh, passed a kind of recycled last year CTS test, 
which served as the competency test and then was, you know, off to the races and, and put online as a latent print examiner. At some point, relatively soon after that, the an error was discovered. The latent print trainer in the uh, the unit didn't really do much training other than just verifying that examiner's conclusions, went directly to the sergeant, and the story was not that she had suffered from a lack of training, again, not really much training at all, just like a 40-hour class, uh, and some time on APHIS, but a lack of confidence. She finally did get the training that she had been asking for and was eventually put back online, uh, but was under this, this cloud of another error would mean her job. Uh, eventually, she worked many more cases, became a certified latent print examiner, and then uh, started implementing a training program at that agency so that other new trainees didn't have to go through that same situation and, and could feel that they had been uh, adequately trained. I think heartfelt is another great way to put it, Glenn, as you did here for the other one. I very much thank you for the story of your experience dealing with an error and how it still affects uh, you to this day. You know, I hope that continued discussion in our community of errors can lead to handling th these situations better and, and more appropriately without a lack of training, without a cloud of, of your job being on the line and, and you know, all the other problems that, uh, that this examiner went through. Hey, uh, speaking of error, I, I thought I'd mention this. Uh, I actually just made an error the other day. Uh, I made a – well, technically yes and no. <laughs> I, I would have made an error. I would have made probably an erroneous exclusion. I was adamant in my head that it, this was a fingerprint. I mean it had all the trappings of a fingerprint. It looked just like the side of a thumb and all the ridge flow like that. And uh, my verifier had searched for it. Didn't find it, didn't, you know, looked for it everywhere, didn't find it either. We we're about to exclude, and then she said, well, wait, Glenn, did you look at palms? I didn't see anything in your notes about palms. Like, well, I did, which I did. I mean, I've looked very briefly, but I really didn't look very hard. I mean, I, I had done a quick search, but not re a, a very, th because I didn't think it was a palm. And uh, I, she said, well... You know, what if it was this or this and that? And I thought, well, let me just take another look before I exclude. And I ended up finding it in the palm in an area where I wouldn't have thought it was. I was just looking at every single delta, and it was way down in an area that I would not have guessed. It just didn't look like a palm shape. Wow. So it was, it was one of those things that had she not prompted me during verification to, are you sure you're good on the palm side of it? You know, it just would have, it, it, it certainly would have erroneously excluded. So, I mean, there it was, you know, just another, and it had a focal point and had plenty of minutia. It just didn't have the shape of a palm. That's what threw me off. Oh, okay. So I'm assuming the, the focal point being a delta then? Yeah, it had a delta and then uh, about, it was very thin. It was a very thin um, latent print. Sure. That's why it looked like the side of a, of, a, of a thumb because it was so narrow. It was maybe... I uh, quarter of an inch thin, maybe half an inch near the delta, at, but then it gets real thin as it moves up, and that's why it looked like it was going up in the tip. You just had a series of fifteen ridges going up into what I thought was a tip area, very very thin and narrow. And what area of the palm did it end up being from? An extreme hypothenar, uh, way over on the side, and had just caught the outer loop delta. Oh, the, oh, the Delta the from like a, an out-nose loop. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it was just so skinny. The shape of it. That's what just kept throwing me at the shape. It's so skinny. 
you know, it was just one of those things. And, and, you know, I, I should have been, I should have thought of it in terms of, well, of sure. palms and searched more carefully in palms. But I could imagine a situation where uh, you even do look through the palms and that far outer edge isn't recorded well. And you think, eh, yeah. maybe I'll just still exclude it anyway. Because what are the odds? It's the the delta on an out nose loop, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just such a great example of. I mean, here are these very experienced people. Yeah, uh, er- errors are going to happen, yep. and we need to change that culture. Absolutely. And in fact, we have a whole paper talking about errors today. We do. And, We're going to get and there. How to avoid errors? We're going to get there. Um, but one other thing I think, just to, to cover real quick, uh, is yep. that we were actually in the same place at the same time here recently. We were. We we went to a conference. We actually traveled to, well, you, you went to two conferences. I went to I went two to conferences. Conference. Man, I was so, oh man, I, I can see it now how I'm, I, Nashville might kill me. Uh, <laughs> hmm. um, but uh, yeah, two conferences in two weeks was... Uh, was real rough. We went to the Texas II conference in the Dallas area. It was so great to see, you know, so many old faces and meet some new people. Just to be at a conference, uh, talking about fingerprints and seeing presentations, giving presentations. The banquet was fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, it was yeah. just a great time all around. A great job to the people with the Texas Division II, the conference planners that put it on. It was fantastic. Yeah, and a special nod to Jack Flanders. Jack, uh, it was so great seeing Jack, and the guy is just the most one of the most sincere human beings I've ever met. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, I, uh, uh, Jack's great, and uh, incoming president of the Texas Division, and uh, very deservingly so. Uh, the Texas Division couldn't be in better hands. Indeed, indeed. Maybe we'll get to some of the other stories in another episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Well, and then the, the week after, I was in Louisiana, uh, so I don't want to to leave those folks out. Also, a fantastic conference. <laughs> it was funny just the difference between being at a, you know, at a hotel kind of conference versus a, uh, you know, the state training facility type of conference. Mm. Um, mm. But mm-hmm. uh, Louisiana has a fantastic training facility. Had some really good Louisiana food. So excellent. All right, Glenn, is it time? <laughs> Yeah, it's time. Uh, Fifteen minutes, I think, is pretty good for everything that we had to, to to cover to get before here. But we did have a little catching up. There. We did. Uh, so this uh, article is misuse of scientific measurements in forensic science uh, by Atiel Drawer and Nicholas Skurich, published in Forensic Science International. And this paper came out last year in 2020. Yeah, we're a little little behind. We probably should have tried to get Well, to we've it got sooner. a bunch of papers to catch up on. We're gonna have a couple episodes in a row, I think, of uh, of papers, but. Uh, Yes, and and probably two related to, two episodes related to this. One. Sure, sure. So so Glenn, why don't why don't we before we jump into the article itself, you know, why don't you set us up with a little like you know background and starting point for the rest of the discussion? Sure, I just I just wanted to kind of set the table here, and I don't know if if we've had this conversation before, Eric. But ETL Drawer and I, we were in New Zealand together in 2012, and we were at a conference, uh, and we weren't vacationing together or anything. We don't vacation, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the South Seas. Seeing the Shire with, with a teal, that sounds like a <laughs> fantastic. Right. Uh, we were at the conference together, and we were actually hanging out with a group of people, and we had gone um, to a restaurant and having drinks, and Etienne and I got to talking, and we were talking about the inconclusives, and he really 
really wanted to address inconclusive because, at, especially at that time, Black Box had just come out. There were a number of other papers emerging, and he wasn't really happy with how uh, inconclusives were being handled in that. And, you know, I know your view. I have my view. He and I discussed a little bit, and we both had a strong interest in inconclusives, but we had different viewpoints. And I remember some of the things that he said then. I was, I thought, hmm... I don't know. And then he said, well, we should write a paper together. And and I was on the fence for a little bit, but I thought, no, I, I know he's got very strong views on inconclusives. Maybe if I join up, we can temper and balance that and still get his viewpoints out with mine and try to temper those together. And we did. We ended up writing a paper on, on inconclusives. To be fair to the audience, uh, we we did have a very critical review from several professors at Lausanne who disagreed with many elements of the paper and a very almost scathing review of the of of our paper, which is fine because I I kind of get where they're coming from as well. Uh, my point being is there are many different views on how to handle these kinds of things. Uh, but when when we wrote our paper, I I thought it was sort of middle of the road and attempted to address some of these issues that particularly trying to address the notion of sometimes an inconclusive is appropriate, sometimes it's not. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And when this paper came out, I started getting emails from people saying, hey, have you seen this new paper on inconclusives? And I started, I mean, I got several several emails, several comments, uh, talked to a few people, and it kept coming up. I even reached out to ETL after I read it and said, wow, ETL, it kind of seemed like this paper is running contrary to what we said together in the last paper. They they don't really seem to, you know, jive together. Kind of seems like, you know, it's almost... I, in fact, I actually suggested maybe it was written mostly by Scourge as opposed to Drawer. Uh, I thought maybe it just seemed to have a different voice. But, you know, ETL responded. And I, I tried to reach out to him and see if maybe he wanted to come on or we could talk about the, the paper. But in his view, he said, no, no, they're, they're not in conflict at all. These two papers complement one another. And I, I never really formally responded to all of that. And we didn't do much back and forth. This will probably be a lot of formal response. And I, I, you and I have not talked about it, but I know where you are going to go. And I know you're going to lose your damn mind on some of this stuff. <laughs> and because, I mean, I know you have such strong views on this. And I, you know, I, I've told ETL before when I really w- like one of his papers. I will tell him, I love this paper. Here's what I liked about it. This was not one of my favorites. And yeah, and Etail and I have that friendship, that relationship where I can be very blunt with him. And I hope he understands in the spirit of of my critical, you know, just being critical about the paper. I don't agree with a lot of the points in here. In fact, tend to side with some of the forensic scientists who have read this and said there are actually factual errors in this paper. Not just different viewpoints, but factually incorrect things. And when I read it, I kept highlighting that's factually incorrect, and I assume tonight we're going to cover things that are factually incorrect and not matter of opinion. My so, highlighter is out of ink. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I and I and again, I hope that listeners will understand that's, that there there are certainly elements where one can have different viewpoints when it comes to things that are factual. Though I mean, the fact is either it's either correct or it's not, and, and we're going to try to I assume focus on some of those. So. Uh, let's jump into let's the jump paper. in. Okay. So let's start with some of the stuff that is fine. Uh, 
uh, I, I think that that might be a a good place to start. Hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. So the the thrust of the paper, and it's not really evident in the title, but the thrust of the paper is is how to account for inconclusive conclusions, especially in accuracy studies. Some of the you know at the beginning of the paper, they start off by uh, describing how first, in some instances, inconclusive is the the most appropriate conclusion that uh, an examiner can reach. Mm-hmm. So again, taking a step back for, for, for a second, this entire paper is written from a perspective of a three-conclusion system. It focuses on latent print and firearms uh, accuracy studies, both of which were set up with uh, a three-conclusion scale. So we, we may kind of get into you know how this aligns with a five-conclusion scale later on, but for for most of the discussion, we're going to be uh, assuming that uh, we're discussing in a three conclusion scale. Also, because that's what you know, black box and and all these other papers are, are, are have been have utilized. Yeah, and, and specifically, let me just point out, as you say, they focus on fingerprints and firearms here, which is why we'll probably end up doing a part two with hopefully a firearms examiner that is interested in talking about this. So we've got something lined up. But we're going to focus on the fingerprint part in this episode. But specifically, they say, basically, these error rate studies, accuracy studies for fingerprints fail because they, and here are the two points, they don't include inconclusive evidence as test items, not including inconclusive evidence as test items, and never counting inconclusive decisions as potential errors, either excluding the inconclusive decision from the calculations or scoring them as correct decisions. Those are the two things that they say f- fingerprints particularly fails on. So, uh, and we'll, we'll get to those here <laughs> real soon. Uh, the, right. But I, I would agree that, that with their point that in some circumstances and some test scenarios even if you do know the ground truth for uh, of source for a particular latent print in an accuracy study or in real casework it could be down at a level that where there's not enough information and uh, inconclusive would be the appropriate conclusion to reach conversely i think there's also uh, some instances where an examiner might make a identification or exclusion decision and there's not enough information to support that that is important to understand when that happens and to have data reported in a study uh, that distinguishes the circumstances when that happens and how frequently that happens so i think these are two points that they make here in this paper that that i would in general agree with glenn mm-hmm. for, for, yeah. as well okay yeah uh, they have a few lists here. And and if it helps, I have a list as well. The list I want to start with is actually right in the abstract. That's the one I want to just okay. write out right out. I've the got date. that one here, which is also in okay. section four, right? Yeah. All right. So let's let's uh let's go through this list that they have here in the abstract and also in section four of the paper, which is a, a list of uh flaws in error rate studies. And they, they list uh, four main flaws. Uh, so, flaw number one, Glenn, they, they accuse error rate studies of, first, avoiding difficult and ambiguous cases where errors are more likely to occur. Thoughts? Uh, well, as someone who has conducted these studies personally and has actually written right in the study statements, uh, I have chosen these cases to cause errors. I tested these. 
uh, prior to uh, giving them to examiners. I selected only the cases that produced errors in my test samples and then used them in the study. Uh, FBI said very similar things. They chose difficult samples uh, that were actually more difficult than the representative casework they might have come across. Uh, Every researcher that I can think of has chosen specifically more difficult samples, including Brewer's research with Manukin and Kellerman as well. Uh, I, I can't think of a single researcher that didn't specifically choose test items that were meant to produce errors because every one of us said in our papers, if you have a study and you have no false positives, it's not going to be very informative about how errors happen. You got to have some difficult samples. So I, that I, I'm halfway through the, the abstract and I'm like, wow, that's not true. In fact, maybe, maybe that's more true in other disciplines, but certainly not true in fingerprints. And I never saw an exception in the paper saying, Fingerprints are the exception. They have clearly attempted to try this. If they had had the exception, I might back off, but they they basically said firearms and fingerprints don't do that, and that's definitively not true. Well, so going to section four here where he goes into detail of this first flaw, there are, let me check here, zero references to specific papers where uh, he would accuse this of actually happening. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised. And I would direct you, um, I asked you ahead of time if you could have the uh, the black box paper uh, open. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you take a second here, scroll to figure three in the black box paper. And, you know, listener, pull up your, I'm sure you have it just on the desktop. Just go and just double click on that and open it up. Uh, Scroll to figure three. And the mated image pair X at the top right of figure three. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. So this is, the latent print here is, I mean, there's like three ridges and a smudge. Uh, Glenn, let me me read what they say here. A difficult or ambiguous case where errors are more likely to occur. I mean, just look at it. Wouldn't you agree that that's this situation exactly right here? Yeah. They they had to have chosen chosen this specifically because the pattern in the latent looks like a whirl and its actual true source is a loop. Right. And every researcher that I know did something to try to produce some errors, whether it was running it through a database, trying to use close non-matches, using ambiguous samples. Uh, Name the study and we can point out the difficult... uh, I I don't understand that statement. I, I don't know how it's supported or justified, frankly. In fact, not sure how it actually passed an editorial review without the references. I totally agree. With I, with respect to fingerprints, I, I keep I have to keep saying that because I have not seen the samples in the other studies in the other disciplines. True, but I mean, if there were those samples in the other disciplines, I would expect a reference here in this section describing which study uh, avoided difficult and ambiguous cases uh, and some sort of demonstration that that was actually the case. Yeah. Okay. Their second flaw. Second flaw, excluding inconclusive decisions from analysis and error rate calculations. (laughs) Yeah, now that to me is a very nuanced thing. Again, could have benefited from better editing, which is, no, they're not excluded from those calculations. They are not part of false positive error rate calculations by the definition of false positive error rates and false negative error rates. They're certainly in the calculations, 
Absolutely. I, I mean, just again, go back to the black box paper and you can see the calculations uh, definitively include the results from inconclusive conclusions. It's, it's, I mean, it's just so clearly incorrect. Yeah, and, and, and if one wanted to, then you could use the positive predictive value, negative predictive value, and false discovery rates. Uh, you know, if you want the inconclusives basically removed from that. So you have the capability to calculate however you want. They're present. It's not as if the data were removed or thrown away. They're certainly there. There are multiple conventions for calculating error rates. False positives don't necessarily include inconclusives. So what I thought was most disingenuous about this uh, this statement is, again, back to the, the bottom of uh, this section in the main body, uh, they go on to make the point that uh, they see excluding inconclusive decisions from error calculations as especially problematic uh, because these are the decisions that are more prone to error. And they specifically mm. quote, which, again, I would be concerned as well if that was the case, but it's not. But they specifically quote, um, <clears throat> particip quote particip uh, another study which said uh, participants reported more inconclusive decisions than correct identifications for latent trials that were rated the most difficult to compare. <laughs> that quote is from the Miami-Dade study. And you just go to the Miami-Dade study. They included the inconclusive decisions in their analysis of error rate calculations. I mean, it's just so disingenuous to bring up this quote as a concern for a study that did the opposite of what, what they found as a flaw. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, if they're trying to say that they're excluded from the false positive error rate calculations or false negative error rate calculations, okay, yes, by those definitions. But again, the raw data are there, so one can certainly compute the different statistics if you don't want them and which which is exactly what pcast did i mean pcast absolutely reported both ways with and without the inconclusive so i, I i'm really struggling to follow the logic there right okay third flaw uh counting inconclusive decisions as correct decisions all right, yeah. so Glenn. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you. Well, let's go back to the one. black box paper. I will yeah. direct your attention this time to figure number eight. Yes. Uh, so, figure number eight uh, describes examiner performance on uh, three different skill dimensions: the false negative rate, yes, but also the true positive rate and the true negative rate. Glenn. When you calculate a true positive rate or true negative rate, especially here in this black box study, do you count inconclusive decisions as correct decisions, <laughs> i.e., the same as an as a uh, as an ID or exclusion for for being true? No. Again, just as in the last one, they are not counted as part of the false positive or false negative error calculations. They're also not counted as part of the sensitivity or specificity true positive rate, true negative rate. So, yeah, it's, it's bizarre to me that, again, maybe in another discipline somebody did that, but none of these studies I'm aware of included them in the true positive rate because, of course, they weren't true positives. They were not identifications. So I don't, I don't understand how, how or why that was said. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, again, I have my opinion. If, you, if you're counting the, say, the false negative rate, 
then you count up the number of actual false negatives, exclusions that are incorrect. Uh, and then in the numerator, the denominator includes all the chances you had to make that false negative decision, uh, which includes the inconclusives. They're not counted as errors. They're not counted as false negatives because they weren't false negatives. They were uh, at worst false inconclusives. But then the, the opposite is also true for the the true positive rate. In the true positive rate, you're not counting them as correct decisions, uh, which it specifically says counting inconclusive decisions as correct decisions. You're not. What you should right. do is count the number of cor true positives, correct IDs in the numerator. The denominator includes all of the inconclusives as well. Those are counted, but not as correct decisions, as inconclusives when you had the opportunity to make a correct decision or, or to make a yeah. positive um ID or uh, decision. Yeah, exactly. I mean, point two and three are related to one another, and both are factually incorrect. Maybe, maybe they meant to say when you include the inconclusive decisions in the total number of trials for that calculation, it will reduce whatever error rate you're calculating because the denominator gets bigger, which is true. But they didn't say that in that way, and that's what PCAST said in perhaps a much more specific and a much more clear way and more exact way. Now we can debate if, if you know that whole issue, but the whole point is that's what should have been said, not the way it was said in like under two and three, you know. And ultimately, uh, who who cares? This is what I love. This is why I loved having Christoph on, you know, you know, whenever that was a month ago, because he basically said these things don't really matter. Who really cares? Why are we quibbling? If you calculate the false positive error rate for the black box study, FBI fingerprint black box study, without inconclusives, the error rate is zero point one seven percent. If you put the inconclusives in, it's zero point one five percent. We're talking about 0.02%. That is, what, 1 in 5,000? Well, we'll get into what I, th what I think they're actually trying to do here, but we'll save that for <laughs> to, to the end. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, bizar I mean it's, re it's really bizarre. I just don't, I don't understand when it's clearly factually not correct with respect to fingerprint studies. All right, so the fourth flaw they list. Uh, examiners re resort to making more inconclusive decisions during error rate studies than they do in casework. <laughs> and while that might be the case, they go on to describe it as they're, the examiners are doing so specifically so that they cannot, quote-unquote, be wrong. <laughs> and cannot, quote-unquote, be wrong in a accuracy study. Uh, right. and, and in fact, go so far as to say, I mean, just the ultimate straw man argument here, that an examiner can say inconclusive for the entire error rate study and have a quote unquote perfect score, which A, no, because then the data is much more nuanced than that and would reflect that an examiner did that. And no one's actually done that. So why even suggest that this is a problem when no one is actually doing it? I mean, even if there are more inconclusives in these accuracy studies, there's multiple components that why that might be the case. A, these are more difficult tests than actual casework. And we already went over why that's the case because the study designers designed them to be so. 
And B, because there are tend to be a higher prevalence of mated samples uh, in these studies than in uh, actual casework, which would tend to produce, uh, again, more inconclusives than you might normally see. Uh, both those are great points, Eric. That I mean, that's exactly why we might see a higher prevalence of inconclusive. What I don't like about this is damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because their first point somewhere in the paper is, well, these studies don't have enough difficult trials. <laughs> that, that's not true. They have a lot of difficult trials because they're trying to produce false positive error rates. When you have difficult trials trying to produce false positive error rates, you're going to get more inconclusives because you're hovering near the baseline. If you don't, if you want the same <laughs> rate of inconclusive as in casework, then our samples will be much easier and you can expect our error rates to be awesome. They will be amazing because there will not be that many mistakes because the average case working latent has 15 to 20 minutia, which was published in a study that Eric, uh, Cedric and I did years ago when we explored actual casework difficulty, latents, number of minutia, etc., and found a good proportion of ID versus inconclusive, what that was in the actual casework tied it into statistical modeling and everything, and found that, yeah, there is a different proportion. But the average casework latent print tends to be easier than these studies. At least based on number of minutiae, I should qualify that. We didn't, at the time, we didn't have things like um, ULW quality maps or other things to measure that way. We measured likelihood ratios and number of minutiae. Sure. So in this paper, then they uh, they also propose a different study design that uh, essentially does a, a three by three grid. So if you're familiar with how these results are typically displayed or reported on, or if you've taken a class from Glenn or I on any of this, uh, you'd see a, a two by three uh, grid with across the top, the same source and different source as the two columns. And then ID and conclusive and exclusion as the three rows and then you kind of fill in which ones are correct, which ones are errors, and then the inconclusives, which different terms could be used for uh, for that row. Yeah, I, I, I before you jump into it, I, I even hated the labeling of those figures. Yep. Uh, they, oh, okay. You're, you're going to say it. All right. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, and then you know he has then they have their uh, three by three grid where you have again the rows being the same ID and conclusive exclusion but then the three columns being same source different source and then an inconclusive column and we'll get to that here in a second but we've we've kind of talked through this before with the the palm black box paper and with uh, with Heidi uh, but in their graph here they list off in the current they mark, mark it as the current quote unquote misleading study design. <laughs> which has you know IDs on same sources correct, exclusions on different sources correct, and then the opposite two are errors. And then the whole inconclusive row, quote, never considered as potentially incorrect. And again, that's that's just not true. When when you're calculating uh, a true positive rate, you'd go to the same source column, and the true positive rate should be, in my view, the number of correct identifications divided by the total number of same source samples. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, you know, I mean, true positive, right? That's, that's this label of correct and the inconclusives aren't in there. Right. It's, 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 it's 
I mean, he's this graph is just completely incorrect if you've just glanced at the actual papers that have been published. All right, Glenn, I, 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 mean, I kind of gave it away here, but the current, the proposed, what they label correct study design. Right. Does that look familiar? Well, I, I just found the labels very presumptuous that, I, if, again, if I was, uh, let's say, a reviewer on this paper, I would have said, just go with current study design, which, although isn't correct, I mean, you write inconclusives, you know, that need to be fixed. But just go with current and proposed as opposed to misleading study design and correct study design. Very presumptuous that it's correct when, again, there are conventions. That's I don't know why that word isn't used more. It's not used enough in PCAST. It's not used at all in this paper. There are conventions for calculating computing statistics such as error rates. Different ways to do it. But, I mean, this this looks familiar to me because I mean, it was in the, the, the Palm Black Box paper, right? Yes, yes. I mean... Yes, it's, it's exactly what Christoph and Heidi did. Right. Now, granted, they presented the data in two different ways, right? They presented the data right. based on just the factual true source of the prints, uh, the same source right. or different source. Um, and then they presented it in this method where the inconclusive column is determined by basically a majority vote of the participants comparing that sample to see if inconclusive is should be deemed the most appropriate conclusion to use for a given comparison by consensus by consensus and w we discussed though you know during that article when we talked about the palm black box paper how that can also be problematic so it, it's it's you can't just present the data in that way uh, right. because it can be misleading uh, to some degree where someone who is factually correct in making an identification is deemed as an error right. when the majority said uh, inconclusive. And when the the decision is split, you know, almost evenly between say identification and inconclusive, then you're kind of by definition lumping almost half of the responses into a full-on error when in reality it's the the truth is that it is a borderline decision. Yeah, and those nuances are what came out in the palm print black box paper. Uh, those nuances did not come out in this paper because, again, it was theoretical. And to be fair to the authors, the palm print study came out after this, so it wouldn't have been available for them True. to have considered. So I get that, uh, but it shows that their, their quote-unquote correct study design doesn't actually foresee the the inevitable nuances that you just discussed that, that were prevalent in the palm print paper, which is why they presented both ways. So, uh, what what then, what's really struck me here, though, uh, is you know, looking at this quote unquote proposed study design is is looking just taking a step back and looking at all these boxes. All right, three by three grid gives us nine boxes, and uh, in their proposal here. You can see there's got three green correct boxes and six red error boxes. And there's right. no differentiation between the errors. They are all just errors. And this is where I think they're going with this and the reason why they're doing this. And this is just supposition on my part, you know, again, based on just why would you make so many factually incorrect statements and, but then, and then propose this. Lumping these all together, all six boxes as errors, then allows someone to take a uh, an accuracy study like this and say, 
the error rate is, and just error rate singular, is mm-hmm. 30%. Yes, which uh, not only has been done, but I saw it and heard it testified to in a courtroom having someone do exactly that. And then if by extension saying that th- – basic, you know, is saying, okay, if since it's 30%, that means 30% of the identifications are incorrect. And that yeah. that that leap there from lumping this all together, you're not providing the details that come out in this kind of data analysis, making giving it a singular number, and then applying that singular number to back to one of their very specific boxes here is – I think the purpose of this paper it potentially misleading, which is exactly how I saw it used in the courtroom. If anyone wants to follow up, what they're proposing is not new. Go back to Haber's papers uh, when they reviewed black box studies and all the other error rate studies. They had a whole series on error rates, and they they did exactly this. They said exactly the same thing. These are all considered errors, and the error rate's closer to 30 or 40% or something in, you know, in black box study, which is just ridiculous. And, you know, this is not theoretical. This is exactly what was testified to in the courtroom from someone with a PhD who's, you know, says to be an expert in psychometrics and measures error rates, very believable, very, you know, very impressive pedigree. Yeah, this has the potential for extreme misuse and misleading, and I know it because I've seen it. I, I know if we are able to get a, a firearms examiner on to talk about some of the challenges they're seeing in the firearms community, it'll be interesting seeing uh, how this is being used you know, right now in the firearms community. In my view, this is how you disguise the very high performance that latent print examiners have when reaching the identification decision and confuse the courts uh, to suggest that the error rate for making the identification decision is much higher. Yeah, I hate to say this, but we we can put all this to bed. We just need more of basically Houston Forensic Science Center blind proficiency testing. The minute we do that, we can show what the error rate is in casework. Oh, well, now that I'm even saying it No, loud, they're going to do the same thing. They're going to do the same thing. They're going to do the same thing and say, oh, well, there weren't enough difficult samples in there. There's, or, look at all the con- inconclusives. Look at all the inconclusives, right? I, yeah, I, it, it's a no-win scenario. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Let's keep playing the game, I guess. Let's just keep spinning our wheels on something that's not advancing the actual science. So with this proposal, this proposed uh, grid of nine, like we said here, the Palm Black Box used this same grid with consensus vote of the study participants to determine what is actually same source, different source, and inconclusive. Again, note that even for a different source sample, if the majority of the participants voted on it being an identification, then if you were actually correct in saying it was different source, you were deemed to have made an error because the consensus was factually incorrect by saying it was an ID. But that's one way to do it. The other way that they propose here in this paper uh, is to assemble a expert body ahead of time to review each of the samples and uh, <laughs> determine between ID inconclusive and exclusion, which is the most appropriate conclusion for you know for each of these samples. And I, I think the problems with that are obvious, <laughs> but. <laughs> Well, just look at the palm print black box study or 
you know, other other we you don't have ground truth. Yes, you have these panel, but who do you select on the panel? How many people? What if the majority has you know has uh, has the wrong answer? All the things you pointed out about that can happen and did happen in palm print black box. So again, it's not that this three by three grid is of it in and of itself an improper way to display information. It is a way to display information and can be very helpful to illuminate. Uh, what's going on with the data, but it also has severe limitations and should be included with other ways to present the data, uh, depending on what question you're asking. And it seems here that they're proposing that ultimately you're asking a single question, what is the error rate of this forensic discipline? Uh, And that's an improper question because there is no answer to it. It, There are multiple different error rates that answer different Mm -hmm. types of questions. Yeah, another point made by Heidi as well and Christoph when they came on that we should never expect a single error rate. There isn't an error rate, as you just said, yes. Uh, Depending on the conditions, that error rate is going to fluctuate as it should. might be different for palms, fingers, toes, difficult ones, easy ones. (laughs) That's the basic nature of error rates. They are conditioned probabilities. So one of the suggestions that I see that they did not do, which I have to be honest, I think we covered in the paper that Dror and I did on inconclusives. In fact, I'm almost positive because I kept fighting that we needed to have this in there. But I know it was also a criticism that we got later from uh, from you know from the Lazan crew that had read it. But for me, the way to assess if inconclusive is correct or not is through what I'll call an, um, an exterior metric. And it's as simple as this. If, if we had a likelihood ratio tool, a model that could measure the specificity, selectivity of the features, how discriminating they are, and you set an identification threshold of, well, whenever the features are above, let's say, a billion, whenever your statistics are a billion, then that's a justifiable identification, assuming your model is solid and is measuring what it should. Then to me, the way to demonstrate that an inconclusive is appropriate is when your statistics come back as 100,000. Well, it could be supportive that they're from the same source, but that would be effectively an inconclusive. Now, in an OSAC model, that might be moderate support, but point being is that's how you measure if something is inconclusive or not, is you have an outside metric. Or uh, if you use maybe a quality map score or some combination of both where Anything above this score is justifiably an identification. Anything below this, well, that's inconclusive. But having a panel of people with the same limitations and problems as what you're trying to measure as your ground truth, that is a, as, as again pointed out previously, it can have some value, but ultimately is not where we want to go. We need an exterior way, an external way of measuring effectively the information content in the latent print. Absolutely. And even then, there's still even limitations with that method where you would have to have a nuanced description where it's if if you didn't say ID when the model says it should be inconclusive, it's not a it's not just red labeled error as if as if you had yeah. also said exclusion. It, it is it's it goes into a, a different type of category which it would mean a, a overstatement uh, or some other term 
to distinguish it because it's 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 more nuanced than this just straight black and yes. white approach. Yes. And and to be fair, the study I just described, Cedric and I did. We we did it 10 years ago. We went through cases, we measured the likelihood ratios in the the IDs and the inconclusives, and the idea being if it's an identification, it should be fairly high and above this threshold. If it's inconclusive, it should be lower. And not surprisingly, we found inconclusive decisions that probably were on the same weight of some identifications. And I think we found very few, if any, IDs that actually were probably in the inconclusive range. Right. So we found examiners being relatively conservative in casework, ca- calling things inconclusive that they probably could have identified. And, that, and that's just a whole other kind of aspect of this topic. That overall is the approach that our field has taken to, you know, when you start to get to the edge, full-on inconclusive. Yeah. Be very conservative when making an identification. And see, see previous episode. We'll see multiple discussions about this. But that right. I, I, I encourage examiners to have that mindset. I think that's good for our field to have this mindset because although it uh, would tend to in this kind of study, have examiners not make an ID when they maybe could have, having that over, maybe overly cautious nature has resulted in our positive predictive value being extremely high. Mm. And Mm -hmm. that is, all of these numbers are related, right? You can't, there isn't one error rate, there's multiple error rates. And as you start to affect examiner behavior, all the error rates start moving around differently. And if our goal, which I think it should be, is to maximize the positive predictive value and get that as high as possible, then other error, other measurements of, of error or accuracy overall are going to suffer. And that's fine yeah. because we want that one number to be as high as possible. Yeah, yeah. Seems obvious to me. <laughs> All right. Again, there's this mindset throughout the paper of the single correct answer and then every other response is incorrect. So with this three conclusion scale, for each comparison, there is one singular correct answer and two fully erroneous answers. And I just, I disagree with that. I, in my view, there are situations where there are two supportable, correct answers and only one that would be an error. Essentially, can you see the comparison that splits the field evenly, uh, say, between ID and inconclusive? I think about some of the training cases that we use, right? Yep. Uh, And some of the ones where I I, I know I've talked about in other episodes, uh, there's several that I have where I get every single conclusion. And what I tell students is, you know, a, a third of them will ID it, a third of them will be inconclusive, and a third might exclude it. And I tell all of them... I don't disagree with any of your reasoning on this one, right? I mean, technically, if you can justify your exclusion decision, I I get it. If you can justify your ID decision, I get it. Now, per ground truth, only one of these conclusions is accurate. Which one do we report? I I can I can honestly see how all three conclusions are justifiable under those various conditions. I, I see those cases where the room is split between sometimes inconclusive and a more definitive one. I don't think that necessarily either student is wrong. 
Well, and those specific training samples are pretty rare. I mean, you, we have to search for years to find them. But uh, even in casework, I, I, you know, I can I can think of plenty of situations where uh, I was the verifier for a specific comparison. And in looking at it, I'm like, you know what? I could verify this as an exclusion or as an inconclusive. I, I, either one of those I would be sure. totally fine with and could see as a supportable and correct answer. Uh, because yeah. it is borderline, uh, to then reduce that to say, no, 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 only one of these is correct. That's just not the reality of this work. There's no. there's certain comparisons on the border where I would say that there are, are two correct answers and uh, and then one uh, incorrect just because it is it is just factually incorrect based on the source of the finger. Yeah, and that's the advantage of a quantitative measurement or model is – you don't have to have a cutoff. You don't have to be this categorical decision. You can basically report the measurement or show that it's right on the margins. All right. Last list here to go through, and I think we can start to wrap it up. We kind of worked backwards to this paper. <laughs> but, uh, hmm. So this is issues that are often not accounted for in error rate studies. And as a result, the reported error rates in such studies may be misleading. This is the reading from the paper. So issues that the authors here see as problems with error rate studies. Uh, number one, dismissing or not counting errors because they are regarded as clerical errors. Glenn, did they have any, were there any clerical errors in the black box paper? Well, no, not in black box. I, I assumed they were referring to a couple of other studies. There are three latent print studies that deal with clerical errors. Well, they didn't make a reference, so I can only assume they meant Miami-Dade. And in the Miami-Dade study, they did it both ways. They considered it as right. uh, as as clerical errors and reported the results that way. And they also considered it with all of those errors not being clerical, being true errors, and reported the results that way. So saying that they were just they that they didn't count those errors is factually incorrect. Right. And the other two papers that involve clerical error rates would be one from years ago that Casey and I did that I, I don't even talk about because it's not a good study. Uh, it's never cited by anyone and shouldn't be because it wasn't a good study. It was the first foray into error rates in the entire field because no one wanted to touch the topic in which we had a number of perceived clerical errors. We reported both numbers, uh, but said we believe that these are likely clerical error for the following reasons and went through a list. So at least we, we reported both. And the other study, ironically, is Drawer and Casey Wertheim study on APHIS errors uh, and the potential of bias from APHIS in which there were clearly clerical errors in their study. And the reason for that being is they would give these candidate lists and someone would potentially identify, let's say, candidate number one, but then they had to click through, right, and effectively eliminate the other nine people on the list. But every now and then they'd find in the same list someone also had a second identification to the same latent. So this happened multiple times. Right. You would have had to have had an examiner identify, let's say, candidate number one to one person, and that same latent then be identified to candidate number seven. Unless you have an insane examiner, those are obviously clerical errors because they had to click through and click each candidate after that 
and uh, they just fat fingered well, it the, or fat moused it. Right, yeah, exactly. However, the interface was set up, it allowed for them to be able to continue to select multiple identifications to multiple people to the same latent, clearly clerical errors, which they computed both ways and likely said these are clerical errors. So, again, you're absolutely right. From the perspective of fingerprints, I don't know anyone that dismissed them or didn't discuss them or use them, including the author of the paper that we're talking about. All right, number two, selectively publishing only studies that reveal low error rates. (laughs) Uh, okay. Um, okay. period, right? No references. I I mean, do we know? I'm just, I mean, like all I can do is just go with, nope, not true because there is no evidence provided to support that statement. Yeah. I mean, if, if we were being selective, Miami day would never come up. Right. I, I mean, I, I can't think of a, of an accuracy study I mean, typically these are funded by the government and there's all sorts of documentation that it received funding and then didn't get published. They must be talking about firearms then. Again, some some references would be appropriate here because otherwise I'm just going to have to say that is factually incorrect. Right. With respect to fingerprints that we know of. I'm going to go on a limb and say even for firearms because <laughs> they didn't provide a reference. Uh, I put the, I put the burden of proof on them to make that statement, and since they did not Fa- provide okay. the proof, they failed to meet that uh, burden of proof. Fair enough, but we'll have to get a firearms examiner and ask that question. Uh, number three, uh, not mimicking the realities of casework, which can further increase errors such as stress and bias. That one I I'll go with. I can I can get that one. I mean, if, if another way of saying you know if um. If they knew that they were being tested or didn't have the same consequences as casework, I, I can I can agree with that one. Would you uh, say that that factor made the reported error rates in such studies misleading? No, well, not misleading. That was their their statement as to why uh, uh, that led up to this factor. I would say it's Hawthorne effect. We don't know right. if it's truly representative of actual casework error. We don't know how close those two are. It And the idea that it has to be, you know, lower in the studies compared to the higher error rate in casework, I don't, you know I don't buy into that. It's just, it could be the other way. It could be higher in the studies than in casework. We just don't know. And it's better to be agnostic here and say, we don't know until those studies are done. All right, uh, and then we kind of already covered the last two, but the the other factors being not including inconclusive evidence as test items. Uh, we already demonstrated that is just not not true, mm-hmm. and never counting inconclusive decisions as potential errors. So there's two ways that they consider that here: either excluding them from calculations, which has occurred at times, and I would um, agree that it's inappropriate to exclude them from the calculations, excluding them from, say, the denominator, uh, but or scoring them as correct decisions, which is just factually not true. As, right. It's never been done in a, in a fingerprint study. Yeah, I, I, man, I, I don't know. I, that's why I, I was very surprised. Tried to reach out to ETL. I, if he listens to this episode, ETL, don't, don't, don't be mad. I, I mean, I told you, I, there are just things about this paper I, I'm not... I don't agree with can be factually 
proven. So exactly, Sorry. we can demonstrate uh, them to be factually incorrect. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we've had papers before where I've disagreed with the study design, or I've disagreed with with the way to do calculations. Uh, but I, I, right. I don't remember reviewing a paper before that is just so factually incorrect. Ah. Uh. Uh, you know, ironically, the last one I remember that was so factually incorrect was the Habers paper. Well, there's that. On this very topic. I mean, on this exact same topic, the same issue, exactly as it's being presented here. All right, Glenn, any final thoughts here uh, or anything else that, that uh, we missed in in going through this? No, I mean, you and I, we've discussed many of the error rate studies. We know the error rate studies in this field. I I can't help but sit here and go, are they just talking about the firearm studies? Is this all about the firearm studies? And I know some of those studies. So I would love to hear how, you know, how, if any of these apply to the firearm studies, but it's, it is a little confusing to me. I have, I I sit here and go, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, but I think that's, that's a further problem. Even we assume worst case scenario and all of these criticisms are, correct criticisms of firearm studies. I I don't agree with that, but let's assume that that's the case. Then writing this up to to lump in all the fingerprint uh, error rate studies with the same uh, Mm -hmm. criticisms is is extremely inappropriate. Yeah. 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 I I got nothing to to counter or add to that. Well, uh, hopefully then... um, you know, if if this type of topic or this this type of discussion comes up from a defense expert in uh, somewhere where you're working out there, constant listener, you know, let us know. Let us know if this is popping up and becoming a problem where you testify. And uh, you know, hopefully, this discussion of the issues that we see in this paper can be uh, can be helpful in um, uh, in refuting those arguments. All right, Glenn, uh, ready to wrap things up. Yeah, I think so. I don't I don't know that we can add much more to this other than to just recognize that I, authors have, have attempted, like Heidi and Christoph, have attempted to address inconclusive from novel ways. And I, I just don't know that this is really – I don't know if it's that big of a problem or such, an, uh, such a real issue. I, I – I guess I'm failing to see the bigger scale here. I, I kind of feel like the studies that we have are, they're of course, they're never perfect, but have truly been genuine in trying to produce error rates. And as a result, if you make them difficult, you're going to have inconclusives. How you handle those inconclusives is debatable. You can either include them in your uh, denominator or exclude them from your denominator. The reality is it doesn't change the false positive error rate one bit. Who cares then? If that's the number that everybody cares about, then why are we discussing this for years on end? Well, and you know, I did some reading up on, on other fields, right? This isn't just a fingerprint firearms issue. Uh, the same thing comes up when you're doing a, a test if someone has a disease, uh, oh, that type of how how timely well <laughs> i mean it, it's going to be with us for a while i guess so anytime a disease comes <laughs> up but but assuming let's say a, a you know a cancer or some other uh, disease where, where there's a, a a clinical test 
and the you know there's some sort of a color test or you know some sort of measurement of of a color change and they say okay above this uh value uh is positive below this value is negative and in between uh, is indeterminate and there's literature published about how there are multiple ways that people refer to this in between zone uh how they uh include this in error rate calculations Mm-hmm. And and I mean, people are are also struggling with with how to relay this information, but basically the conclusion of all those papers is don't just lump it all together and try to smash it into some other uh, calculation that to, to make it fit nicely. Provide the nuanced information. Uh, in all of these separate categories, so that you can clearly see what's going on with the data. Right. I, one other thing I recall from the medical papers when I was doing my thesis work, and this is, I think, I think this is why I think I'm struggling to find the relevance of the message in the paper, because in the medical community, when you have inconclusives, and first of all, just aside, why do you have inconclusives with those tests? It's usually because what you're trying to sample is at or below the detection threshold, right? In other words, it's a sensitivity issue. Why do we have inconclusives in fingerprints? Typically because you don't have the, uh, as much information to deal with. It's a sensitivity issue. So that, that makes sense. In the medical community, what you would do is what is the consequence of an inconclusive? Right. What is the consequence? That's exactly what they do. It, if it is a cancer test and it comes back inconclusive, you don't go, well, all right, that's good enough. We was, let's just call that a negative. Let's throw that in a negative category. That would be a little foolish to do. Or, or lump it, it into the, well, you got cancer. Let's do some surgery exactly. or start chemo. <laughs> exactly. It, 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 what is the consequence of an inconclusive? So let's put that in terms of fingerprints. What's the consequence of an inconclusive if they're coming from the same source? We're being conservative. We've likely missed the bad guy that day or not reported the identification that might assist the case. And and if we were to move to a different system where we were uh, less conservative in pulling back from that ID, what are the consequences overall to the, the actual identification conclusions? It's going to make that conclusion less accurate. And we don't want that. We want to maintain our high accuracy there. So we're going to continue reporting uh, inconclusive uh, in situations where where there isn't enough information to uh, provide any kind of result uh, or when it's it's borderline and uh, we are responding in a conservative way to to not report an identification uh, and risk uh, risk. Risk risking someone's freedom. I, I don't. I don't understand the the big deal when you think about the consequence of inconclusives. These are often good things from the perspective of criminal justice safety, if you will. From a quality assurance perspective, or training issue, or performance issue, a little different issue. I mean, that's a little that's sure. a little different. Uh, inconclusives can be problematic in a unit if. 
if you are never getting your stuff verified by a single person who only goes inconclusive on everything. Or, you know, they're constantly budding in a unit and there isn't a consensus. I mean, those kinds of things can be a bigger issue. But again, let's think about from the broader perspective of criminal justice and um, wrongful convictions, I think inclusives are probably the better way to go. Yeah, absolutely agree. All right. So, Glenn, um, we're going to be in Nashville in just a few weeks. Yeah, we are. A few weeks? Oh, I suppose. I, yeah. I mean, from like from recording here, what is it, five weeks, maybe six? It's it's coming up. <laughs> Get your presentations coming, finished yeah. and ready to go. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. That I do have to do. Uh, oh, me too. Me too. Uh, but for you know, any listener out there that's also going to be in Nashville, very much looking forward to seeing you. And uh, so come find us. I'm usually easy to spot in a crowd. Just looking forward to speaking with uh, with each of you in person uh, that we maybe haven't seen for a couple of years now. Yeah. And I'm looking forward more to drinking with each of you in person. <laughs> and uh, Glenn, do you have any classes you want to talk about here upcoming? Yes, uh, this fall, uh, there are actually going to be live courses uh, that I'm teaching, and uh, one of them will be the Advanced ACE-V Applications course that will be in Osceola County, Florida, which is basically Orlando area. So if you're looking to get to Orlando, August 23rd to August 27th, we'll be teaching that, and then uh, also teaching again in... Colorado with John Black. That is October 4th through 8th. That's Exclusions and Sufficiency. And then finally, uh, teaching in Indianapolis, Indiana, November 8th through the 12th. That's the ACE V course as well. And um, I have a, a new 40 hour class uh, on exclusions. Reach out to me over uh, email to get more information about that. Should have a website set up here soon, and that's offered through uh, Idemia. All right, Glenn, were you able to crack the anagram this week? I did. It took me a couple of minutes, uh, but uh, yes, uh, Texas Conference. Texas Conference, absolutely. I bet you you're trying to put the EX at the front uh, of words. I absolutely was. Uh, that's exactly how I started. <laughs> And then going from there. No, um, very good. Texas Conference. And hope everyone else out there got that one as well. Uh, especially with, with the little clue there in the very beginning of the episode talking about uh, our the fun we had there in uh, the Dallas area. Yeah, I kept trying to associate with the paper. Like <laughs> exclusion, <laughs> erroneous. And I, I just kept doing the X, like you said at the beginning. But yes, and then Texas kind of popped out. There we go. All right, so uh, if you have any uh, comments, you want to reach out to us, Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. Uh, you know, again, we, we talked about some of the emails we got here recently on uh, the last topic and uh, definitely appreciated those. So any other ones that you guys may have, please send them on in. Uh, you can go to our website, doubleloopodcast.com, for episodes and merchandise and uh, the FIGS newsletter, uh, signing up for that. Hopefully everyone's uh, you know, getting that uh, now. I know we've had some email box rejections, so if you're not getting it, maybe throw in like a personal email to make sure it goes through and your agency doesn't block it. And you also, from that website, you can get to all of the, uh, the Twitter info for, um, and other social media stuff. Uh, let's see... 
you can you know, listen to us on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on iTunes. Uh, leave us reviews. You go to iTunes.com. Sorry, leave us five-star reviews. If, if you want to give us a one-star, just send us an email instead complaining because we'll, we'll get more of a kick out of it just through the, uh, just over email instead. But uh, <laughs> five-star reviews over at uh, iTunes. Uh, also, Patreon.com slash podcast uh, if you want to uh, throw a couple bucks our way and, and help us out with equipment and hosting and that kind of stuff. The opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker and not necessarily anyone that they work for. And with that, uh, have a good night, everybody. Talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay sane.